Welcome to Word is Truth. This is Doug Presley. It is uh, March 3rd, 2021. And we're ready to begin our worship service. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for bringing us together this evening. We thank you for life, health, and strength. And the fact that we are still here on the battlefield is a privilege. So, Father, we, as we do, uh, we pray for wisdom as we uh, attempt to answer questions and provide your direction. And we pray for wisdom as well as we pick up the text in Romans and uh, give us insight as to uh, the message there as well. Father, we pray for our families, our relatives, um, that we might be a witness, uh, in, not only to them, but in this world of your grace, of your love. And we pray for each person that may interact with us. They may see you. All of this we ask in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Amen. So we are studying in the book of Romans. We finished Romans 8. And so we're trying to go through a review. Uh, we're about halfway through. And uh, hopefully we will um, conclude that tonight. We have notes. And then on to Romans 9. So... Uh, but in the meantime, we have opportunity for some Q&A, which we normally do at this hour. So we will pause. Uh, the floor is open to see if there are any questions. Of course there's a question, and I have got one. Oh, go right ahead, um, When we were talking about that saved for sure document that is now on the website under article. Yes. In the intermediate category. Um, I had a question about, or we were talking about the authorship of Hebrews, and I believe it was chapter two that gave a hint about what level this information was received at, um, such as Hebrews 2-3, uh, the saying it was the great salvation, it was declared by the earth, by the Lord, and it was attested to by us, um, attested to us by those who heard. So it, it makes it sound like there were people that were in the direct audience of Jesus, and then those people informed the author of Hebrews. Do I have that right? I think you're missing some, and, and something well, there. That's part of the, well, that's part of the question. The other part was I thought you used the term that I don't remember, something about apostle level. Oh, well. The level uh, of apostleship. So, yes. Well, I don't know if apostles, even though we talked about apostles because the disciples are the ones who heard him, right? Uh, so if we were to say, uh, how should we escape if we ignore such so great a salvation? The salvation was first announced by the Lord. Okay, so we know... Uh, the Lord, and then was confirmed to us by those who heard him. So, when it says to us um, by those who heard him, who are the ones who heard him? I, I'm assuming that is the 
disciples slash apostles who heard him. So a direct um, in hearing from Christ himself, walk with him for three years. And then it was confirmed to us, says the writer of Hebrews, by those who heard him. So I said, I did not think this could be the Apostle Paul because of the fact of what he says in Galatians. Um, Galatians chapter 1, where he says he did not... Let me just read it, since we have a little a moment here. Galatians 1. Uh, so it says... Let me see if I can find exactly where it says it. Right. So he says, uh, verse 1 and 11... I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. So you see, in Paul's own words, it seems to deny that he got the gospel or this salvation from those who heard him. It looks like it to me is not the Apostle Paul. And then he even goes into more detail, right? Um, you heard about my previous way in Judaism. Um, what else? Uh, how he was advancing. I'm skipping down. Verse 17, I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were the apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, and stayed with him for 15 days. F 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. Right. So, if we compare that to what we saw in Hebrews chapter 2, what would you conclude? I would reach the same conclusion you did that he was one of the ones who heard, not one of the, uh, not the author of the Hebrews, um, who is saying us, um, who heard from those. Right. So, so many people um, would quick, be quick to say uh, that the Apostle Paul wrote Hebrews. And in fact, it's even in their conversation. So they say, when you go to Hebrews such and such, you see Paul said such and such. I'm thinking, oh boy, they just, they're so sure it's the Apostle Paul. They <laughs> so I could say it's the writer of mm -hmm. Hebrews. That's what I say, because I don't know who it is. And it doesn't appear that it's Apostle Paul. What if I thought it was Barnabas? What if I said, oh, so uh, from Barnabas, he wrote such and such. It was. It would be a little bit presumptuous, and it and it speaks beyond what we need to speak. It is okay that the writer of Hebrews is unknown. I, I'm fine with that. Uh, maybe some people are not. Maybe that's what it is. But um, so from from that evidence that I have, uh, I would say the Apostle Paul was not the writer of Hebrews. Okay. I had I had heard that um, some people were estimating that it was either Paul or Apollos, and um, 
sure of Apollo's background, though. Was Apollo a Jew, or was he a Gentile? Oh, that's a good question. I think he was uh, Jewish, and he was mentored initially by Priscilla and Aquila. I think we we get that. But I think he was Jewish, um, coming into the faith, and was mighty in word uh, and speaking. Uh, He was a warrior for the Lord, so... But I... I, I would have to go back and look, so don't quote me. I haven't actually, that's a question I don't know that I've looked into as to what his uh, racial identity was. But but it would be a thought you know, to ask, um, to see whether or not. Well, that would be his, his um, you know, whether, whether he was a Jew or not would be one question. Um, obviously, the, the writer of Hebrews is well acquainted with, with the um, Jewish tradition. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, but Apollos, um, I don't know, I can't rule out that Apollos wasn't one of the ones who heard um, Jesus, rather than being confirmed to him by those who heard. Yeah. I don't think we can rule Apollos out, um, or Barnabas, or... Uh, Mark, John Mark, or one of the others. Well, some of them were Gentiles, so like Timothy, or I believe, no, not Timothy, but Titus. He was a Gentile. Um, But so, so the the speculation is certainly valid, um, and we. But I don't know that we're going to make a any strong confirmation of what the writer, who the writer is, what his identity is. I, I don't know that we're going to be able to come to that, even if we suspect it's this one or that one, right? So, And it, I, I don't even know that there would be any benefit except to be able to go around and say, ooh, I know who the writer is. <laughs> well, that's, what, uh-huh. that's exactly how some people <laughs> say it, you know, like, uh, and then if you say, oh, the writer of Hebrews, they're like, no, it's the Apostle Paul. <laughs> how did you know that? Well, you know, it's this and that. They they have their reasoning, and the, who, and they know Paul is very astute when it comes to uh, the law and Judaism, and and obviously it is whoever is writing this is writing to people of Jewish descent who know the law, because mm-hmm. they they get into it, right? They get into it, but um, there's a lot of people who might fit that bill, uh, so we. You know, it's not just the Apostle Paul, who's smart, who's a Pharisee. There's others, others who are believers and very knowledgeable about what happened in Judaism. So, and God has the liberty to choose whomever He chooses, and we, you know, instead of us wrangling about that. Well, for now, I mean, we're good, but I'm saying with others, that is. There's so much more in the book of Hebrews to talk about. You know, I, I'd usually just sidestep that question. If, not the question, but when people are trying to to assert that they know who the writer of Hebrews is. I, I'm, and, and, and it's not like the book of Hebrews would carry more authority 
if we could show that it was Paul who wrote it. Yeah. Why, why would it carry more authority if it was not Paul? You know, even Paul himself in First Corinthians says, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad <laughs> I, I didn't baptize any of you. You know, I don't want to hear people say, I follow Paul or I follow Apollo or I follow Jesus. Yeah. And, and you know, the funny thing about it is, in all of, just about all of Paul's writings, he is not shy about identifying himself at all. He's not shy. And so why would he be shy when it comes to this? I mean, and we're getting ready to study Romans 9. And I've already been looking at some of these verses. And Paul is very candid about his love for Israel even as someone who's in the church. So we're not, I'm not thinking in any way that Paul is somebody who's timid, uh, so timid that he refuses to put his name in the writing, which he has done with just about all the other books. He's, I, Paul, I, the apostle point, appointed by God. You know, if you start looking at his books, that's how he, he begins. So for instance, I'll look at 1 Corinthians 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, uh, 2 Corinthians 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, Romans 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. I mean, you could go all the way to 2 Thessalonians. I'm just picking anyone. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church in Thess of the Thessalonians. So to me, it seems he's not shy about who he is. And, uh, but when you get to the book of Hebrews, nothing. So, uh, I, you know, given that and given the other evidence we talked about, I'd say uh, it's a strong possibility the Apostle Paul did not write the book of Hebrews. So. I would agree with that assessment. Yeah. So, um, there are other okay. things that people say, like, uh, you know, people are intent on telling you that the King James Version is the version that everybody should be using and how uh, the other versions are corrupt by man and Satan and this and that. Again, uh, now that is something we can speak to as, you know, what, I wonder what everybody did before the King James Version came along. <laughs> I guess they were deceived, too. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. But anyway... Um, they sat around saying, man, I, I wish King James would come along. Right? <laughs> yeah. I've heard a lot about that. But that's another one of those uh, things people are very adamant about. And really, in my opinion, not with a lot of uh, knowledge. Uh, they refuse... They they are they think that if, unless you say it in the King James version with that old English uh, accent, it's not even an accent, but it's just the old English uh, way of of writing. Then uh, you're not speaking for God. Simple as that. You're just not speaking for God if you don't use the thus and the thou and you know all the stuff that King James throws into it. You're just not speaking for God. And to me, that's, um, that's a problem. Uh, you know, and 
I'd say now, from reading the NIV for all these years, it's a problem for me reading the King James. Uh, I mean, you have to go all the way back to, you know, what we had in these um, ancient ways of speaking. And why? For what purpose should we do that? Uh, and then there's manuscript evidence, which on top of that. I think there's a couple of things that we need to look at. One is that. So you're saying the NIV is the best version? Uh, I wasn't saying that necessarily. Uh, I was just saying it is more. The, it is better than uh, some of the. Uh, it was based on better manuscripts than the King James Version was. When we say better manuscripts, uh, when they. In 16. 11 when they um, were working on the King James and prior to that they had certain manuscripts most most of it came from the Texas what they call a Texas Receptus uh, which is really the text that is received by us and that thought was okay so this is the text we have at the present time but the, and, and that is what the King James was translated on so from 1600 to three four hundred years they have come they have found a lot more manuscript evidence even um, entire manuscripts of the bible that predate uh, the manuscripts that were used in the texas receptus so do we just say ah we don't need that manuscript evidence we throw we should throw that out or should we uh, incorporate that manuscript evidence into our understanding. I say the latter. And so I don't know if we talk in perfect translation, but because um, there are things in the NIV, I look at it and I say, oh, I don't know why they translated that that way. Um, so I wouldn't say perfect, but it does the job. It does the job. That's why I use the ESV. Because <laughs> Dwight, there's Dwight with his ESV, see, so I don't know what that stands for. Better than the NIV? What, what did, let me think, think about that. ESV. Um, what I understand, that, well, there's, there's two points that I wanted to make. One is that we read for understanding. And so if, if, the, if we are challenged by the language itself, by the old English language, I think it's just going to make it harder to get to a point of understanding. I mean, there are things that we understand uh, well enough to be able to make up um, analogies and metaphors on the spot with somebody that we're speaking to to help them understand as well. But I don't know if I could do that effectively if I'm using an archaic language, old, old English, to try to make a point. Mm. Yeah, I found that... And then I also understand... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, then I, I also remember reading somewhere in the beginning of... Probably the, in the beginning pages of the NIV where they talk about what the process was like of going through their interpretation. And I understand there's basically two pools of thought and um, as, as far as the text that they use. And one was based on majority text, which is where you get the, um, the Catholic Bible and the King James and stuff. 
and the other one was based on um, text that dates further further back and to be more and more original. So the majority text could include things into the text just because there were a lot of places where they said those things. But if you try to find those things in the original text, you won't find them. Yes, so we're, we're dealing with copies now. So there, nobody has the original autograph anymore. There is none, at least as far as we haven't discovered any original autographs. But what we have is copies of uh, the New Testament, which they started copying it immediately and spreading it all over. And it actually got spread to even far places that you wouldn't imagine that it was copied. So you got thousands and thousands of copies of the New Testament out there. So then what we find is, uh, let's say uh, the Texas Receptus or majority text may have been using manuscripts from the 11th and 12th centuries. But then we find a slew of manuscripts and even fragments. We have fragments, not full manuscripts, some, from all the way from the first century. So now, first century, second century, fourth century, third. Uh, so now, what do we do with all this information? I say we, we use it, and we can use it to compare the text. So if you're seeing things that happen early in the text, uh, you know, let's say a particular verse, and you see how it's written early and it's consistent, and then all of a sudden it's changed in some, and you have to wonder, why? Why is that? So, we, we you know, the, the writers of the NIV, the NASB, ESV, uh, and a lot of the newer translations have dispensed with uh, King James version being somehow uh, inspired by God. It is not. It's a translation. That's what it is. And we're not saying the King James Version is worthless or it's no good or any of that. We're just saying that we're, we're, um, we're seeing something better. For instance, like we we're studying Romans chapter 8, right? In Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, of course, the King James has, who walk af not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And then, if you look at, that's the King James Version, but if you look at the NIV or ESV, those things are left out. That last phrase, it just ends with, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Why would they do that? Well, the King James people will say, well, you see, they're taking away from the word of God. That's evil. Yeah, that's not evil. That is paying attention to what the manuscript evidence presents us. That's what it is. It's not evil. So this is, it's, it's almost a debate among many. You know, it's like, oh, it's King James. And, you know, they're trying to tell you that it's... Um, manipulated by Satan and, you know, designed to remove, you know, God out of uh, the, all kinds of things. You know, it's, it, it, to me, it, it, I don't even really want to get into the question of it, but I would. I, I looked into it 
enough to realize that that position is not correct. So we we don't have to yield to some of the arguments that are said. So I'll pause. Other comments out there? Bill, did you have another thought? Dave? Dwight? No, I'm good. Hmm. Um, good evening, everybody. Oh, I'm sorry, Dwight. Good evening. Good evening. Hey. I wanted to say uh, amen to Dwight's uh, commentary on the King James and the Old English. Uh, he could be a salesperson because the Old English certainly does not work for me. <laughs> oh yeah 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 in fact that was uh i was going to say something to that but i forgot but so you know what i found myself doing was having to learn when i started reading the bible was i had to learn king james english plus i had to learn the bible so then i thought well why why go put myself through all of that having to learn how they spoke back in 16th, 17th century, why not just, you know, look at a modern-day translation and I don't have to cut, it just cuts through all that. Then I can just learn what the Bible says. I mean, it's we got the spirit to teach us what the Bible says. That's enough, really. We don't need King James putting another layer of, of difficulty for our understanding. So... That's how I saw it, and that's why I thought, no, there's there's a better way to to approach this. So yes, uh, good thought, and welcome, Fred. All right. So, I'm I'm good. If you want to move on with the Romans eight review, that's fine with me. Romans eight review, here it comes. Okay, so Romans eight. Um, we have notes and we are, I think we can't go through this whole thing again, but there are some highlights from the highlights, <laughs> but I won't go over those. Uh, just, I'll just say that in those early verses, I think there is a cohesiveness of understanding of where Paul was going with Romans and it's consistent, right? There's a theme. You could see how from Romans chapter 5, 6, and 7, how it progressed into Romans 8. And now what his issue is, uh, what, what, what he's emphasizing in Romans chapter 8. But then he turns a corner after he you know, is done telling us how we can walk in the Spirit and fulfill the righteous requirements that, that are upon us from God. We can walk in the Spirit. And uh, all of that is about here. This one point here I wanted to bring out. You know, I'm giving you highlights on the highlights. Is in Romans, uh, point number two in your notes, right? Where the mind set on what the Spirit desires. Or the mind set on the flesh. Right? To me, that completely mirrors what we have in Rome, uh, 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 and 9, right? So this is the mindset, meaning where you want, uh, you know, what, what do you want to be thinking about? 
and, and so Romans, not Romans, but 1 John 1, 7 talks about it this way. It says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light. Well, walking in the light as he is in the light is like the same thing. This is the language Paul uses, mindset. Mindset on what the Spirit desires. Well, what does the Spirit desire? He's talking about this new age information that we ought to grow up in. So when you put your mind set on that, right, it allows you to walk by the power of the Spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit is the one who is empowering your walk. Well, same and in, in the same thought in 1 John 1, 7, when you... Uh, focus on truth or the light when you walk in the light that is your mindset is to walk in truth then the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin and we have fellowship with one another so those there's Paul's way of saying how we walk and in point b I even put first John 1 7 there and then you can see the whole other thought mind set on the flesh says you are determined to walk by means of the flesh. So those are things that I think we may not have brought out when we went through Romans and, and, and those scriptures, but we, you know, for now we saw them. I thought it was a good parallel. All right, so we're going to move on. So we got down to, I'll repeat some of this, point number five, uh, Romans eight fifteen through 17. This is when Paul begins to turn the corner and talk about the fantastic things that the Holy Spirit has brought to our lives. And this is where, if we think about the, the ministries of the Spirit, Jesus prepped the disciples in John chapter 14, telling them that when the Spirit comes, the Spirit of truth comes, all these things were going to happen. And we would be changed and the, the the dynamic spiritual relationship that he had with the father the mutual possession uh, in fact all of that will be a part of what is the, the dynamics of our relationship so that's what we've come to understand and as we progress in in romans he's turning the corner to discuss more of who we are like our inheritance the riches, right, that belong to us, the glory that is ours uh, as a result of what God has done through the work and ministries of the Spirit. So, first thought, the Spirit ministries uh, make all the difference in us, causing us to be united to Christ, not giving us fear, but confidence in our Father. And see, that confidence is uh, not something that we have uh, initially, but we grow into that. That's something, like, like it says in 2 Corinthians 3, which says we have boldness. Well, confidence, boldness, is the same word, really. And that is to say there is an assurance that we ourselves have uh, about who we are in Christ. And this is something that is part of how we walk. It is not a matter of walking gingerly, but confidently about who we are. And then point B is how? How is that so? How can we have confidence? The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So that where the Spirit breaks through to our consciousness. And that's where we live, right? In our minds and the consciousness of our minds. 
Sure, we can talk about memories that happened when we were children or our memories that happen or, or even dreams that we want ha to happen in the future. But where we live is in the present and the consciousness of our mind. And through what we have learned, the Holy Spirit is allowing this. This is a breakthrough to our consciousness to let us know something. And what is important for the Spirit to let us know? What does he want to tell us? <laughs> does he say you're saved? <laughs> because the Christian world wants you to think that everything is about salvation. Right? Now, I, I'm not saying this to diminish salvation in any way. Because it is great. It is a wonderful thing. But notice, that is not what the Holy Spirit is breaking through to our consciousness to tell us. It is that we are God's children. So there's a spiritual logic in point C that demands that since we are children, then we are heirs. So it's not to say, and you are children, you're saved. No, you are children. And what does that make you? Heirs. Heirs of God. Now, that's, uh, you know, interesting as we think of what does it mean that, that we have an inheritance that comes from God. Because God gave Israel an inheritance, but it was physical in terms of this earth. The land is their inheritance. We did this a while ago. Go back for yourself, if you like, and look up inheritance for Israel. What was their inheritance? It was the land. You will always see that God promised that he would give them the land. And then there were a lot of other promises around that. But mainly, they're in, in fact, they will give you this land as an inheritance right, for all you and your descendants and so forth. But for our inheritance, there's something far greater. And the only, never does it say that our inheritance is the land. Because we are not of this world. We've been blessed in heaven in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. It's in the heavenly realms that, or God says it in other ways, all things are yours. So when we talk about the inheritance, you would think that he's talking about God. Because the scope of what we have is said to be all things. So I, I don't, this part of it is just mind-blowing. It, it, and Paul is saying it demands that we see, that we follow the logic here. If we're children, then we're heirs. And if we're heirs, we're heirs of God. Now, you might not have connected those dots, but the Apostle Paul did. He connected them. And we are heirs of God, literally. Now, what does that mean? Take your time with it. Just take your time. So then it says we're co-heirs with Christ. So it didn't say we're heirs of Christ. And we're, it's like we're standing side by side with Christ. So you would think he's the Lord, right? Why wouldn't it say we are just in Christ and we can get whatever Christ has? Well, it says that we are co-heirs with Christ. If we walk in his shoes, in other words, if we... Um, suffer as he did on this earth, then we will also receive glory. Uh, so that 
in and of itself is another testimony to the fact that it didn't say that we were standing behind Christ to receive some, something if we suffer. It says that we are co-heirs, just like God sent Christ into the world and says, okay, because I sent, because you suffered for me, you will be highly exalted. This and that, right? He's saying you can be a co-heir with Christ, not under him, but a co-heir with him, which is to say that you can be rewarded in the same ways that Christ was. And no surprise there, because in Revelation 3.21, it says, he that overcomes, will I grant to sit with me on my throne, that with him, along with him, not, I mean, just imagine the position that he's speaking of so all all told verse 17 is off the chart about who we are but that's if that were not enough we get into point number six where we are now he goes and takes it up another level it's almost like listening to a singer who his voice is just amazing his or her voice and then they go up and hit this note, and you're thinking, wow, they hit that note, and oh my gosh, how, how beautiful it is. And then all of a sudden, they go higher and hit another note, and you say, oh no, I can't believe it. And your soul is just raptured. So in this way, it, it's, it's this verse 18 through 22 section does that. It takes it even another level. Who, who would have guessed? Who could have thought? that this is where it would go. So 18 says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Right, so the sufferings of this present time, not worth comparing. So the sufferings are parlayed into glory, right? There is a glory that if we suffer with him, we'll be co-heirs with Christ because he suffered in this world and received honor and so if we suffer in this world, we will receive that glory, that honor as well. And through, through physical rewards. But the other, what, what's not worth being compared with it is what we have inherently as those who are children and heirs of God. It didn't say we're heirs of God if. So we, we always like to I, you know I'd like to turn to Galatians chapter 4 in this regard so Galatians 4 says um, for one I mean that is that the heir uh, as long as he is a child is no different from a slave though he is the owner of everything notice the heir is the owner of everything but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father in the same way, we also, when the children, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of this of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And here's that same reasoning again. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, 
than an heir through God. Now, this is this is ESV I'm reading. So if you're confused, <laughs> but says basically the same thing. God has made you also an heir. So it says the, in the NIV. So you're this whole thought that he's describing here is about us. How God sent forth his son, born of a woman, because, you know, this wasn't available. He gave a, a physical analogy about Israel, but then he talked, he turned to the church. And he talks about the fact that we're an heir. And it doesn't say we're an heir if we do something. We're an heir because of our diligence on earth. How are you a son? Well, if we go back to chapter 3 in Galatians, it tells us how we are a son. So here it is. Um, so, verse 26, So in Christ Jesus you were all children of God, and here it is, through faith. There it is, through faith. That's how we became a son. Simply believing. It's not working. It's not enduring. It's not suffering with Christ. It is simply through faith. And then he tells you, for all, for all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus, have clothed yourself with Christ. In other words, because of what God the Holy Spirit has done through, our, through this baptism, the baptism of the Spirit, we, we have to say, look like Christ. So as far as God is concerned, he sees Christ and he's also and when he sees Christ, he, he has an expanded view of who Christ is. It is Christ plus us. So now we don't really have to say it is Christ in the church. We could just say it is Christ. Why do we say it's the church? It's because we're still on the battlefield. But when it's over, we will be one. <laughs> we are one now, but there won't be some on the battlefield and some in heaven and, you know, some sleeping and the, on their bodies here and then in heaven they're face to face with the Lord. It won't be any of that. It'll be, we'll be all in all. So we were baptized. We have clothed yourselves with Christ. We look like Christ. We are Christ from the standpoint of God. So whatever... Uh, destiny Christ has, whatever uh, relationships that Christ has, we have. We are identified with the person of Christ. What, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Notice what all of those things have. You know what all of those things relate to? This earth, this world. We are beyond all of those things. It is not about Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. Uh, all those distinctions that exist down here. None of that applies to us. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Notice, what's Abraham's seed? If you go... <laughs> We, we're not going to get back to Romans, sorry. I just have to say this. We have already made the point. What is Abraham's seed? Does that mean we're Jewish? Does that mean we're spiritual Jews? No. For verse uh, 16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Now, this is Paul's point to make. 
Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person. Who's that person? Who is Christ? So the promises were made to Abraham and to Christ, right? That, to his seed. So he, he's talking about Christ. He's talking about Jesus Christ as we know him. But when, in, in verse 29, if you belong to Christ, and that's what happens through the baptism of the Spirit, it identifies us with the person of Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. It didn't say you, you were a Jew. You are Christ. He's literally calling you Christ and heirs according to the promise. So, back to Romans. I, I know I digressed uh, quite a bit. Sorry. We'll, we'll take our time. And, but we're headed back to Romans 8. We're going to finish this. There's so much more right here for us to deal with. So, so Romans 8, 18 through 22 uh, point number six in, in the notes, a special glory is to be revealed in us, apart from the suffering we may go through down here. And this suffering is not worth comparing with this inherent, what I'm calling inherent glory. That's verse 18. It's not worth even comparing with whatever we're going to get from that suffering. He's talking about something that supersedes that. Something that far outweighs that. And this is what we've been talking about with this inherent glory. Point B, creation is personified and is waiting in eager expectation for what? For us, the church, to be revealed. For us to be revealed. That's, that's who he's, what we're waiting for. I mean, when you think in terms of, it's going to even talk about the church as a woman who's in labor, ready to give birth, and how she's going through labor pains. But this is literally us, right? The sons of God to be revealed. I like what it says in 1 John chapter 3, Beloved, now are we the children of God. And it, shall, it does not yet appear what we shall be. They don't know what we're going to be, but, but we will, when he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And then if you look at Colossians chapter 3, uh, 1 through 4, since then you have been raised with Christ. Now he's talking to people who are alive on the earth. They didn't die and, and gone on to heaven. These are people who are positionally raised with Christ. How do you get that? Through the baptism of the Spirit. We identify with Christ and his resurrection. So what does that mean? That means we are also raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So this is who we are. Literally, we died, our life is now hidden with Christ and God. This is who, uh, now verse 4 is the verse I was trying to get to, but there's so much there about not only what our modus operandi is, what we should be thinking, right? but when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So this is uh, the time when we talked about that oneness, when here 
Christ and the church are separate right now. There are some people in heaven you know, who, who have passed and now they're face to face with Christ there in the church. But, uh, but then there are some people who are still on earth. And then re the resurrection of the church brings them all together. And so shall we always be with the Lord, says 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So it's important for us, I'm going back to Romans, um, because we, we have seen when this happens. It is when Christ comes back. Our life is now hidden with Christ in God. Whose life is on display down here, or should be? It should be the life of Christ. Just like Paul said, for me to live, Christ. That should be how we see this life. Okay. So back to Rome, Romans chapter uh, 8, point number 6 in our notes. Uh, point C, God allowed the creation to be corrupted in hope. So it goes all the way back to the fall. And even before that, it was Satan, right? And who was the one who sinned first. There was a plan that would be liberated, that it would be liberated when we are revealed. So when we're talking about this, we're talking about the whole universe has been corrupted because of what happened to Satan. We talked about before when we went through this, the fact that Satan could still go to heaven. There's going to be a point in the tribulation when he is thrown out of heaven. He won't be able to go there anymore and accuse us before God day and night. Uh, so that won't happen. And uh, that, that time is coming. So point D, freedom and glory of the children of God will liberate the creation. Can you imagine that we, the church age, believers, who all they did was believe in Christ, have something to do with such an immense, uh, magnanimous action of God. The fact that he will destroy all creation and recreate it. So that's the only way for it to be liberated. In fact, God is not going to say, okay, you know, I'm just going to lift the curse and then whatever's left here on earth, we'll just deal with. We'll clean it all up. You know, I saw, like, uh, used to see some of the Jehovah Witness literature. I'm sorry if somebody here is Jehovah Witness, but this in their literature and their thinking, they're going to inhabit the earth. They said it's going to be Armageddon. And so... What's going to happen? The earth is going to be annihilated through, I mean, the buildings destroyed, this and that. So then you see pictures of Jehovah Witnesses uh, cleaning up the earth, uh, going through, straight, trying to put things back in order. Well, that's not happening. God's not, he's going to destroy completely this creation. Now, of course, there is a point where he will renew all things, but that's for a thousand years, and that's when Christ will reign. But then... Everything will be destroyed. So God has a plan. And, and so that's going to happen. And the, they will liberate the earth. And this, these verses in Romans, chapter 8, I don't know how people would see these verses other than to say we have such a magnanimous role in God's eternal purpose. It started before time began, as we saw. He foreknew us. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the very image of his Son. How does that happen? Through the baptism of the Spirit. That's how we are conformed to the very image of his Son. And now we're seeing all of these things that happen 
as a result of the Son. And it's not just the Son. Here in Romans 8, it's us. Right? Well, it's not us in particular. What it's saying is that this was God's eternal purpose from the beginning. So, of course, when it is realized, then uh, us with Christ make God's eternal purpose complete. So then God is able to finish the work and to uh, sum up all things so that, as I said, it's all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. So, so then we have an absolute, point C, we have absolute confidence that God's plan for us is sure. So we wait patiently. That's verse 25, right? And verse 25 says, but if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Yeah. So this is the hope we talked about, for in this hope we were saved. I mean, literally, he says it. You know, how we're groaning. I'm sorry, you know, I skipped. Did I skip some? The plan comes right up to the present day, coinciding with the Father. Yeah, I skipped some in the 18 through 22 section. Sorry. Let's go back. So, point point uh, C. God allowed the creation to be corrupted and hope. There was a plan that it would be liberated when we are revealed. I think we talked about that. Point D. Freedom and glory of the children of God will liberate the creation. So notice the end point of the creation being liberated is when God is finished with the sons that he brought into glory. Point E, the plan continues right up to the present day, coinciding with the Father's eternal purpose. That's my point there in this section, is that if you look at what God is doing, he is relating it to who we are and the bringing many sons into glory. I mean, it, w it would be one thing if all of these things just happened. So, so you could say creation just happened, right? And in one point in time, from our perspective, God created the heavens and the earth. We could say that. But we, but we didn't know why he did that. We just know that this cataclysmic event of creation happened. And, and all of a sudden, there were all these things. And God, the universe, angels. I mean, there was uh, planet Earth. There was man. I mean, there was on and on. But why did all those things happen? It's because God has an eternal purpose in all of these things. So that's what we have to think about. Uh, and so when he says right up to the present day, this is verse 22. This is interesting he says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So whatever happened in eternity past, where he foreknew us, he predestined us, all that, right up to the present day. So God hasn't missed a beat. For God, time has, for like it says, a thousand years is like a day. God doesn't see time the way we see time. For us, it's been millennia that have gone by for God it's him he's executing his plan so point seven Romans 8 23 through 25 creation is groaning as we uh, began to talk about prematurely in the pains of childbirth so it is likening what's going on in creation like 
a woman who was in labor. But what is happening? We know something's getting ready to happen. If you look at a pregnant woman who is in pains of childbirth, you know that there's going to be a result here. And that's what is happening. Paul is likening that to what's happening with God and his plan and how it looks one way. It's pain, it's difficulty, it's a lot of strife going on, but all of this is coming to an end. And the end is what God had planned for us in Christ. And it relates, it affects all of creation, not just uh, some province in, in the world or some city or some country. It affects all creation. That's the scope. You have to expand your mind to wrap your head around such things. So, so what do we do if we know these things are going to happen? Well, we are groaning as well. Not only is the creation groaning, but we're groaning because we know these things. We understand who we are in Christ. We're groaning. Right? We're the ones with the first fruits of the Spirit. Right? So it's we groan because we understand what God has given us and how the Spirit has testified with our spirits that we are God's children and heirs and all of these things are, re are relative to us. Point B, in this hope, right? this is a hope. Why is it a hope? Because And a hope is absolute confidence. It's not me, I hope so. Uh, if somebody says, do you think that'll happen? I hope it will. I'm not quite sure, but I hope so. That's not what elpis means here. Hope means absolute confidence in what God has promised or, or what God has said of us. We know that this is true. And, and in this hope, it says, we are saved. That's the reason why God saved us in the first place for this purpose. Well, he chose us to, to be in Christ before time began. So, point B, that's in his hope, the Father's plan for all things, including the journey through our journey through Adam, right? That's part of it. He knew we were going to have to go through Adam, and we would be born in Adam, dead in our transgressions and sins. And he knew that we would come to Christ. And in all of that, that is a part, once we come around full circle to understand who we are in Christ, then that's the hope that we have. What he just expressed about the glory, the inheritance, the being blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, all of that is a part of our heritage, who we are in Christ. That's the hope. We don't have the fullness of it yet, so that's why it is not a realized expectation. It is a hope. And there was a scripture that said, who hopes for what he already has? And it's what are we waiting for? The adoption of sons, the fullness of that, to wit, the redemption of our bodies. So that's 826 and 27 that it deals with that. The Spirit's ministry is hidden to us, right? And it talks about um, this whole, um, the Spirit expressing our ignorance and weakness interceding for us to the Father, right? There's, there's this hidden ministry that we, ha we have from the Spirit, and that's 826, 27, point number 8. But to note, point B is the Spirit's ministry is hidden to us, but we are made aware to bolster 
our confidence that God is working in us as we experience the rigors of warfare in this world. Now think about it. He didn't have to tell us that he was all this was going on behind the scenes. Because we, in our ignorance, and our weakness, right, we don't know what we should pray for as we ought to pray. But God, the Holy Spirit, has this ministry. So unbeknownst to us, this is going on. Now, whether you knew it or not, it was happening. But the fact that God is telling us this through the Apostle Paul is to bolster our confidence so that we can be sure about who we are. I mean, this is what we call comprehensive care from God for who we are in Christ. Comprehensive care. Point number nine, Romans 8, 28 through 30. We have been called according to his purpose. God the Father is at work and has been working from eternity past to this, when we say good end. You know, there's that scripture, all things work together for the good of those who... Well, the good is what God has already talked about in the context. The good is not that you had a flat tire on the way to work and then somebody stopped by and had a jack because you didn't have one and then everything worked out and you said, wow, all things work together for good. Well, I'm glad that worked out for good. But this good is talking about what he's already expressed in the context here about us. I mean, if you look beyond all of that and think about something that in, in your personal uh, routine in your day and think that that's the good he's talking about in this verse, you, you missed it. You missed it. Go back and read what he's talking about. Us, Those he foreknew, he also predestined. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. I mean, he's getting ready to say all that. But that's the good that he's talking about. The sons of God being revealed, all of that. And, and to that end, that's what Romans 8.28 is. Point B, foreknown, predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. These actions are God-ordained before creation. If we look at Ephesians 1.4, it says just that. He chose us in him before, before, uh, right, the creation of the world. So all of these actions we're being told about happened before time began, before the creation. And these things are directly relatable to us. So this is astounding information that is being revealed to us that relates to who we are, what God intended to make of us and the impact that we will have on all things. Uh, we can't say enough about it. So we're predestined, called, justified, glorified, words that span from before time began to after human history. I mean, it takes us all the way to the end about what God has finished. A complete, this is an, a complete accounting of our beginnings and our destiny. That I mean, that completely says uh, who we are and gives us our due. It speaks about us from before we we even existed, but God saw us and He planned these things for us. And then we finally 
we got down to the time of two, 19 or whatever year you were born, and where he selected you to be here at this particular point in time. And now you are learning through God the Holy Spirit about all of these things. And it just takes your mind and your spiritual consciousness all the way back to uh, embrace what God has done for you. So all of those things happen. It's a complete accounting of our beginnings and our destiny. Where we were, what were we, did he do this for in the first place? What is our eternal role in all of this? Point number 10, Romans 8, 31 through 34. So there are answers to objections with the facts that the Father is for us. He sacrifices only Son to bring many sons into glory. Verses 31 through 32, and then John 12, 24. Yeah. We could, I'm going to let you look up those verses. But the thought here. Well, 31 and 32 are in the context. What shall we say in response to these things? God is for us. Who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Yeah. Those, those are the sons. Point B, continued Q&A, demonstrating that the Father and Son are for us. And they are the only ones who could possibly undo the Father's eternal purpose. We talked about whether well, Jews could be against us, that this one could be against us, Satan could be against us. But the only one who rightfully could be against us and somehow stop what the Father planned from eternity plans is the Father could change his mind or the Son could say, no, I'm not for this. But what, what is the evidence? No, the Father is for us even to the extent that he sacrificed his own son, and to the extent that he justifies us. He's the one that put us, in, justified us forever. So there's no way. I mean, that's, these are all actions for us, not against us. And what about the son? The son is also interceding for us, just like the Holy Spirit is. Another silent ministry that you would not have known about that is going on on your behalf. Christ is in heaven right now interceding on our behalf. The Holy Spirit is, is working. Christ is working. The Father is working. Shouldn't we be working toward this end, this glorious end? Yes, that is why we're here on the battlefield to walk in the footsteps of Christ. So th these objections... All right. What? Who can do it? Nobody can do it. Well, those are the only ones who could possibly do it. And they are for us, says the scripture. So if God is for us, I should say with the Apostle Paul, who then can be against us? Point number 11. This is uh, Romans 8, 35 through 39. We just have a few more points and we'll close. So the love of Christ is mentioned here. It is a reference to the Father's desire to accomplish his plan in Christ. In other words, what's that? To bring many sons into glory. Nothing can separate us from this. So when he says the love of Christ, he's not even talking about us uh, from the standpoint of Christ in the church. 
He's talking about us as united to the person of Christ. So if for God to separate us from the person of Christ would be against the very thing that he wanted to do from eternity past when he chose you in him before the creation of the world. So nothing can separate us from this. Nothing. It, certainly not Satan, not angels, not man, not persecution, not all of those things. Those things may happen to us or we, Satan may come against us, but nothing can separate us from this calling of God. Point B, all the possibilities of things that could and might happen while we are on the battlefield and nothing is able to separate us from the Father's love of Christ. When it says the love of Christ, it's talking about the Father's plan because he loved Christ. And love was his motivation toward Christ to fulfill his plan, which is bringing many sons, and those sons will be conformed into the very image of Christ. So point C, separate us. This identifies us here with the person of Christ. What can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ? So he could have said, nothing can separate you believers from my love. He could have said it that way, but he didn't. He just says, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. Well, wait a minute. Does that love for us too? Well, you are identified with the person of Christ. So he's talking about us, but he's talking about us through the finished work of the person Christ. Remember, God's ideal, his plan complete, is not just Christ. It is us plus Christ together. And what brings us together is the baptism of the Spirit. Or, or just like it says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. So John 17, 23 and 24, we should stop and read that. Hopefully we have a little time. 17, 23, 24, says, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete oneness or unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. You have loved them even in the same way as you have loved me. Verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because, because you loved me before the creation of the world. So before the creation of the world, the father loved Christ. But when it says he loved him, he, he didn't just say, oh, I just love you. I'm, I'm just loving you. No, he, he, the love meant that he was going to, through Christ, Bring many sons into glory. That was his plan. That it would be through Christ to bring many sons into glory. And those sons that come into glory, well, he loves us just like he loves Christ. So there it is related to before the creation of the world. He loved me before the creation of the world. The motivation for the Father 
to create many sons in the glory through the person of Christ was before the creation of the world. So what can separate us? What I would say it this way. What God has joined together, let no man, angel, anything put asunder. Point D. Paul is convinced, persuaded, that nothing present, nothing future, no powers, nor nothing in height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to undo the plan. That's what he's saying. It's not just, well, we can't be lost, we can't lose our salvation. That's not the thinking. He's talking about the Father's eternal purpose. Hopefully we don't miss that. Right? That's something that through the context we learn and we have this hope in this hope. Right? This is what it's about. So nothing. So if you missed, suppose he, he forgot to say something or there was something else. He says, nor anything else in all creation. That catches, I mean, that's like nothing present, nothing future nor anything else in all creation. There, if you don't have confidence after this, I don't know what you have missed or what you didn't fail to understand here. Point E, the Apostle Paul said, and this is a question for reflection, I am convinced, that's what he said, I am convinced. Uh, the question is, are you convinced? And of what are you convinced? If I was a teacher, I would say, I want you to write me a paper, double-spaced, uh, you know, 500 words, exactly what you are, are you convinced, and of what are you convinced? And it'll be due by Monday, if I was a teacher. But I would love to hear what your thoughts are. Are you convinced, and what are you convinced of? I'd like to hear it because, well, what I would hope and pray is that you would follow the context to guide you and that you who have the first fruits of the Spirit would know what he's talking about. So there may be time for you to answer through our Q&A sessions, but I think Paul has already spoken for himself. I would hope that we have adopted the thoughts that have come from the inspiration he has been given. We're going to quit today, but we'll be back next week, God willing. So let's bow our heads as we close. Thank you, Father, for the glorious understanding that you have called us to. And we pray for each person that is under the sound of my voice that, uh, that they know who they are in Christ and they understand the depth of and the scope that we have in this world. So, Father, give us the energy, the wisdom, to be able to understand and comprehend things that eyes have not seen, ears have not heard, neither have they entered into the heart of man. Help us come to the reality of our calling in Christ on this earth and we we thank you for choosing us we we don't 
Uh, there's nothing we can do to repay you for anything you've given us. But all we can do is show our love for your plan. Just as the Apostle Paul is convinced, we want to be convinced as well. We thank you for those who have come and spend time with us uh, in this church. And we, we pray for the ongoing uh, spirit of truth continuing to teach us, lead and guide us into all truth. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.